Welcome to the Hop and Brew School podcast. I'm Justin Crosley. I'm Nick Ziegler. And we are your hosts, as always. The goal of this show, like we like to remind you, is the podcast to connect the world's finest brewers and home brewers with more knowledge about hops so that we can all drink better beer. Always oh, yes. our goal. Yeah. Uh, today we've got uh, a, a wonderful guest from the hop industry uh, who's going to help us with our topic today, um, which is really discussing how beer is, is agriculture. And we're going to talk about what it takes to breed new hops and bring them to market. Jason Peralt is with us today. Hey, Jason, how are you? I'm good, Justin. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. For all of you that don't know, Jason Peralt is the uh, the head guy at uh, Yakima Chief Ranches, um, formerly Select Botanical Group, um, and he is, uh, I, dare, I dare say, responsible for a huge amount of, of why uh, the beer industry is where it is today. Jason, I know this always kind of embarrasses you, and you, you hate me a little bit for it, um, but I love you, buddy. And i uh, got to say that you know, you are, you've had a heavy hand in defining the direction that beer has gone um, by virtue of the hops that you've helped to, to breed and bring to market. And so the list, could you, uh, could you list some of, those, some of those big ones that you've, had a, you've been really involved in? I'm sure, and I appreciate it, Nick. And I think uh, you know the, the key there is I've, I've, I've helped bring a lot of these. It's been a great experience, you know, great career working with some of the uh, some some really great scientists and, uh, and people in general uh, and uh, team members to get these varieties there. But we've you know along the way we've had the fortune uh, the fortune to work on uh, varieties like Simcoe, um, Mosaic, uh, Warrior, Palisade, Citra. Uh, Equinot, uh, Laurel, uh, to name a few. Wow, uh, Pato, you know, one of the latest ones, uh, and then uh, the Sabro as well is another relatively new one. So yeah, yeah, it's been a it's been a lot of fun. Some, yeah. some rock star hops there. Yeah, that's kind of the uh, the list of the big juicies, and uh, mm-hmm. apparently now what what the kids are calling the cheater hops because. Uh, you can't make a bad beer with us. So, uh, congratulations. Thank you, sir. <laughs> it's the cliff notes of, of hops now. Uh, Jason, give us a little bit of your background, too. How, how long has your family been in the hop farming business? Right. So, uh, I'm fourth generation. So, my family's been doing it uh, for quite a while. We yeah. started uh, hops specifically in the 1920s and uh, been doing it ever since. So, we, we started out in the Moxie Valley and then uh, my. Uh, Great grandfather and grand well, my great my grandfather actually uh, moved to different areas of the valley. And we've settled in where we're at now in the uh, the nineteen sixties. Okay. Um, so yeah, that's that's the family farm. And then as far as the uh, the breeding goes, back in uh, the uh, late eighties, early nineties, when uh, my dad and grandfather uh, got together with uh, likes of Tom Carpenter and Mike Smith, and uh, started having these ideas about working directly with brewers um part of that was working with uh chuck zimmerman on uh developing a, a breeding program to uh to kind of help give themselves a bit of a competitive edge it was recognized particularly from the alpha side that there was a lot of potential for for breeding to to uh to bring some efficiencies from the farming side so at that time i was just a young kid in the mullet and the jean jacket um working <laughs> you know, around the farm during the summer times. And uh, um, luckily, uh, good stroke fortune, my dad thought it would be a good idea if I learned from Chuck, who was doing uh, some consulting work at the time. So I I got to spend my summers there uh, in those younger years working with Chuck, both in the original 
establishment of the breeding program in terms of the initial plots. I helped them plant those, go through and select and all that. And then plus going around meeting growers and, uh, and um, getting to, uh, uh, you know, listen to him as he consulted with these growers, get to know some of these growers. And so it was a pretty, that was a pretty cool experience, you know, some that I don't think uh, a lot of young people in, in our industry get to experience. And so, yeah, that, that was, that was kind of my cutting my teeth, so to speak on the breeding side. It was kind of fun to walk in those plots with Chuck because he would actually force me to, to help him take the notes. You know, he'd ask me my opinion on things and kind of walk me through what he thought. So it was, wow. that, that was, that was, that was pretty neat. You know, that was something that at the time I, I, I knew there was something special there, but I didn't think I, I realized then just how, how, uh, how special it was. <laughs> and then is, is, uh, you know, I went to college at that point and, uh, and even and stayed you know through my summers working both with the farm and with chuck and then um and then when i got done with with my undergrad degree it's about the time chuck was looking to retire and he approached me about whether i'd be interested in taking over the uh the breeding program from him as he was trying to back away Hmm. um and uh so i thought it was an opportunity to kind of take that next level because you know it wasn't chuck's full-time gig to to actually be breeding for us it, it was something that you know he directed a really concerted effort and he we had a team in place but it needed a leader and uh he was kind of stepping away so i you know and, and people uh, tend to forget and those that haven't been in the industry for a long time that you know hops weren't always as fun and sexy as they are now right um you know that there was some there were some difficult times in the industry so when i was coming out of college we were in a really depressed market and uh bringing on another level of you know another part of the management team is actually kind of a burden on the farm you know and not that it didn't have a place I, you know it's a family farm i always had a home but it was tough to to kind of carve out your your spot you know and say that you know you got a comfortable place within the industry and so i kind of saw that that opportunity at the breeding program as a way to to not just find my my place but then also kind of make a difference you know a lasting difference in the I think uh, looking back now, it's probably the right decision. Sure. Um, so, you know, the rest is kind of history at that point. I went back to grad school, uh, got a master's degree in plant breeding and genetics, and uh, that was 1997, and I've been doing it ever since. Wow. And thank you so much for, for having been doing it ever since, because that's a, you know, <laughs> as, as I always say, like your, your description of how you work with Chuck Zerman and, and walking through the fields and sort of the, the magical experience of that is a... Uh, pretty much exactly how I, I i have felt for the last almost 10 years uh, coming out for selection and stuff and getting to to walk through your experimental fields and you know you know talking to you about stuff and you pulling off cones and saying hey you smell this one this is really weird what do you think about mm-hmm. that and it's uh yeah. it's just it's fantastic well and as you yeah. as you talk about it too jason it's easy to sit you know because you know i have the benefit of hindsight and and knowing where we are now it's easy to go wow you know what a a lucky time and and certainly you were lucky to have that experience um, and what a no-brainer but really it was not just you finding your place but it was a little bit of a risk i mean as you mentioned the hop market was kind of depressed and you you know here you are you're going to take on this whole new thing thankfully you had the foresight but it was not without risk i mean you know craft beer wasn't oh, absolutely you know yeah it's kind of funny to think back the uh you know and we'll talk a little bit more about the process of all but just even just looking at it from the standpoint of the basic breeding process you're, it's a decade long uh, product development cycle right wow. so you're you know once from from when you start that process to the end it, it, you've got a full decade of development that doesn't include commercialization that's just the development piece and so you you look to those those you know the three families that started that 
and there was no income on the breeding side of it. Yeah. It was just it was just moving forward on faith, you know, literally on faith that something that, that that we will be successful out of it. <laughs> you know, so I'm those first, those, I'm going to correct, correct you, Jason. I don't think it was faith. I think it was trust. Um, and you know, y'all know each other. You know how capable, how driven, how smart the people that you work with are. And you know that's that's one of those things. Where, I mean, I mean, it, it can be a little bit of faith, but I think that it, what really defines a lot of the family relationships that that YCR and 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 the families together, and and I guess now translating into YCH have is you know you trust each other, and that's it, it's a beautiful thing to have seen from the outside, and now from the inside. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I and I don't disagree. You know, and I think you know we're probably in a lot of ways saying the same thing. You know, there mm-hmm. was just there was just faith that. And, and trust in 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 what we put together, and, and that something will come of this. And and part of it too is just out of necessity. You know, it's just we know this has to succeed. Um, right. Yeah. You know, there, there, there's no other choice. There's no failure. Yeah. 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 You know, they, we're not. And you gotta you gotta understand that farmers in general. You know, I can I can I can say hop farmers, but really it's farmers in general, family farms. You're, you're talking multi generational businesses. We don't we don't think in terms of. Uh, you know the next in terms of big picture thought we don't think in terms of the next quarter of the report or or you know performance over a year or two span it's you're 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 really thinking generational and and you don't really give up there isn't just a an exit strategy where you just you know sell out or or whatever sure this is what we do and so that's we brought that same kind of mentality to the breeding that you know we were in this uh for the long haul and uh moved forward you know even though it was uh it was losing money for first couple really the first you know couple decades almost that we were we were doing this wow um under the that 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 trust and faith that we uh we were going to be successful and that we didn't really have a choice in that matter i mean y'all literally literally bet the farm on it um, (laughs) and uh yeah well literally so I got a couple quick questions before we dive into this. And one of them, I wonder if you know, uh, you know, you mentioned, you know, multi-generations here in your family and starting hops back in mm-hmm. the 20s. Um, clearly, there weren't just a ton of varieties of hops. Do you remember what the hops were then? What you guys were growing? Well, well, no, I remember. I, you know, <laughs> sorry. Remember what you were told. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't know exactly what the variety would have been. I mean, there, what, what was grown for a lot of years in the Yakima Valley was, was some variation of the cluster variety. Okay. Um, or, or multiple attempts to grow maybe like a European, more of a European no, noble type aroma. Um, but certainly, uh, uh, something like the cluster would have played, played a major role, in, you know, at that time or something along those lines. And it, there wouldn't have been more than a handful of varieties, right? I mean, we were probably talking one or two no. here. Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, yeah, it was much more limited at that time to to uh, just a handful of varieties. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, it wasn't a huge amount of variation. Okay. Uh, and then my second question, just because you mentioned briefly, you know, the, the timeline here, that you're talking 10 years, and then that's not even to commercialize the hop. Do you know of mm-hmm. another agricultural product that has a cycle like that? I mean, it's pretty easy to just pick, you know, potatoes and 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 uh, and corn, right? Because we're not changing mm-hmm. much. Do you know of another product that has this type of cycle? Yeah, there, there's other crops that will have a similar type of cycle. That, you know, breeding in general t- is is a time consuming process, and I think just about any crop you go into, in terms of just a classic breeding program, you're going to have that. You're going to have, you know, 
probably around a five to ten year development process just from the development side. I see. The difference between what we're seeing, at least now, in hops versus, uh, say, some of the other crops, is we're really trying to avoid genericism. You know, what we're trying to do is create something special and new and unique. And so that's that's where that that lag in commercialization occurs, where you have that long time period because you got to have all this acceptance, this brewer acceptance that going to has to make great beer. Whereas in some of the other crops, uh, whether it be some of the fruits or certainly you know grains and others, uh, the qualification process is much different. There, it's not necessarily it, it is there is a quality parameter; it has to meet certain standards, sure. but uh, the acceptance is much different um, in terms of. of uh, you know, its impact on the final product. Okay. What's, um, what's so I think that's one of the big differences we see. What's interesting to me, Jason, is is like you point out, and, and as Justin brought up, the, uh, you know, potatoes or wheat or something like that, you know, it, breeding is is difficult. And, and with potatoes and wheat, you can actually do the cyclical breeding thing where, where you have a lot more, uh, you, get, you can get squeeze in more crops per year because um, these crops grow exactly right, huh? in, in, in a much wider range of latitudes, whereas hops are, are, are narrowly restricted to, um, oh, what is it, uh, between 40... Help me out here, Jason. Do you remember what the... Basically, you're going to saddle like the 45th parallel. Yeah. Know, right around there, give or take a few degrees there. Okay. And then on, in the equivalent in the southern hemisphere as well. Um, but so, so you have a lot less land and a lot less space to do multiple crops per year. That's one thing. The other thing is is that when you're t- looking at these grains and stuff, um, yes, you got to deal with pest resistance and all these other concepts. But really, you're just talking about two things. Starch yield grain filling, basically how much you get per, per bang for buck, mm-hmm. and maybe the quality of that protein. And everything else, you know, you know, you're not you're not breeding for variance. You're breeding for max, maximization of yields and and crop performance. When you're talking okay. about the aromatics of hops, as as we've talked talked about for for years or for a long time, is that you know we're in the thousands of compounds that are of, of brewing significance at this point. And mm-hmm. so, you know, to, to do that variance, it's a uh, it's just orders of magnitude more complex, right? And you have yeah. half yeah. as much time to do it. At least, uh, if not more, more of a, a fraction, a higher fraction, meaning meaning like you know an eighth of the time, um, and uh, yeah, it's. Uh, well, when you put it all that way, I can't decide, Jason, if you made a good decision or a bad decision. Now, <laughs> made a risky decision that paid off. He bet the farm. Yeah. He went all in, and he knew he was holding two aces. So. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's definitely uh, you know that that, that decade long process when when I was younger uh, certainly was a, a struggle to wrap my head around that you know in terms of saying okay I'm going to make a cross today and you're telling me it's going to be a decade to see before I see anything really right come of that you know um, and so I, yeah that's 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 difficult to, uh, at least when you're younger to really wrap your head around it but all of a sudden you you know you blink and 20 years has gone by and uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, the, the pipeline's full so to speak you know and, and to Nick's point though you know uh, crops like hops I mean your specific question was are there anything that's comparable and if you look at a lot of the perennial crops are are, are going to be similar in that regard you know tree fruit things like that where you not only do you have a uh, this this leg you have uh, difficulty in establishment. It takes more time. You, can, you know, it's not just growing uh, a grain um, from a from a seed to to, to fruiting in, in a really short time period. You know, there's a couple of years of establishment between each step, and so yeah, there, there's different 
uh, obvious challenges that, that come into play with hops that make it a, a bit more of a challenge. Okay. Uh, but maybe not so much as maybe something else, like uh, the apples. You know, think about how long it takes an apple tree to come into sure. full fruiting and full production. So Right, but then with so we're apple kind of trees, in the middle. Yeah. With apple trees and grapes, you have the benefit of something onto which you can graft. So it, it, they can almost cheat in some ways. In some ways, yeah. 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 Okay. Well, let's use this as a starting point. And since we're really kind of focused today on on, on either new hops or, or what it takes to bring uh, hops to, to market, I kind of want to start from square one with you now. And, and, of course, we're talking about present day. I don't Not necessarily when you started this program. You've learned a lot since then. What are the key factors that you think about before even starting a new a, a new uh, product? Because I'm sure that a brewer has a different idea of what you might be thinking about than than you do mm-hmm. as the farmer. So can you give me just kind of walk me through the basics? I'm going to start a new program, a new breed. What do you think about? Well, I think from the from the get go, we have to think first about the agronomics of that hop. Um, we have to think in terms of uh, how are the, how is it going to perform uh, yield wise in the field? Um, the disease resistance, uh, you know, the basic efficiencies that come along with with, with production. Um, because ultimately, what we have to do is create a situation that is uh, that can be economically fair across the entire supply chain. Hmm. It can't be, uh, you know, you, yeah, we can create some really great aromatic hops that. Um, are you know produce an amazing beer that's super unique but if it doesn't produce it doesn't yield right well that's that that doesn't help us because uh um unless the brewer is willing to pay a lot more sure you know so there's the challenge of finding that balance between the uniqueness and and offering something new and and, uh, interesting to brewing and then uh being efficient enough to make it economically viable across that supply chain Okay. So no, no, that's the, that's the big picture answer. You know, that, that'd be the first thing to look at. You have to look at the agronomics first, um, and that's in terms of selection. In terms of you know starting that process, in terms of making the crosses, um, the objectives that you start a breeding program with are going to vary depending upon what you are trying to accomplish. There's on the one hand, yeah, we're always looking for something new and fun and unique um that combines that great yield and disease resistance and other uh, efficiency factors in uh, but we also have to be looking to what's out there and what's being used right now and what people are having success with that could be an example of that probably be you know just something as straightforward as alpha production or uh you know maybe even something that of a, an established variety that doesn't yield very well but yet it makes great beer we can look to breeding to improve the agronomics of that and then go through a selection process that that helps us to uh to to improve that um or you know introduce disease resistance things like that okay that makes sense and now you know do you do those things change a lot for you know year to year now from what brewers want you know in terms of alpha and aroma or do you do you now kind of have this core of things you know and you can take that and just go back to the agronomics with it um you know it depends on which angle you're looking at it from you know from an alpha standpoint if we're breeding for alpha, for something that's going to produce alpha and, and do it more efficiently, more is more is obviously always better. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of demand from the aromatic side, 
And there's always going to be demand for those those kind of traditional aromas, you know, the, the European noble type hops, or even now, you know, something like a cascade type hop. Those are more of the traditional aromas. There's always going to be some level of demand for that. And that sure. doesn't really change a whole lot. Uh, what does change is, um, you know, what what are we looking for in terms of new aromatics? What What's new and what's novel? What, what can be exciting in that regard? You know, a, a few years ago, Simcoe was considered a hop that is completely unique and, and almost too aromatic to even be commercially viable uh, and too unique to be commercially viable uh, whereas now Simcoe uh, the, the people don't see that as being exceptionally you know necessarily unique it's very mm. impactful but they, would you call it unique I don't know um, so then you're always looking for that what's, what's the next thing on the horizon that's a difficult thing to ascertain it's difficult to find because if you're talking about something new and novel uh, who, who's defining that? Right. Who's, who's deciding what's what's in demand? Sometimes I, I don't, you know, the brewing industry may not even know because they don't know what's available. They don't know what the op- you know, what, what what the potential options are. And so Jay- that's you know that, that's kind of the challenge that we face. Jason, this is one of those things where I, I've spoken to you about this a lot over the last couple of years. Is that as brewers and as a brewer, I I became quite frustrated, to be honest with you, with uh, customers' constant demand for novelty. Because, you know, we you have to purchase your hops on on contract really to get the, the quality that you want, and you have to be able to sort of predict how you can use these things. And me personally understanding a lot of the agronomics behind hop growing and the fact that, you know, a, a new field will take two to three years to reach maturity Mm. um, and you're not really going to get a lot of return for the growers at that point that you really have to think quite far out and so people need to understand that it's not just you can't just go into a warehouse and you say okay well i've got fifty thousand tons of this new really interesting variety well that's what we're going to sell in 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 2020 that that's not how it works it takes a long time to get to know the plant to get the plant to bed in right to 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 to, to move to that to that level of production and and then be and then be desirable i don't even like the word i don't even like that you said jason has to think far out he in some ways has to guess far out oh it's 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 absolutely (laughs) guessing you know and even so even the brewers are faced with this frustration and so we're pressured from this this um from the consumer this, side, this, this consumer side that that you know some small brewers who who were nimble enough, basically they had a seven barrel system or a ten barrel system, and it didn't cost them a lot. And they weren't even contracting hops; just started sort of randomly grabbing crap mm-hmm. and, and mixing mm-hmm. it together and, and making some interesting beers. Yeah, but when mm-hmm. it comes to the whole industry, that's actually you know yes, it's 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 cool to have access to that, but that's actually really difficult for the supply chain to keep up with. Yeah, new malts don't come out that often. New hops, we know we we, we try. But it but, takes 10 years. But, Jason, then, are those yeah. small brewers that Nick's referencing there that kind of had that flexibility, do they do they actually become kind of your market research for you? You know, they kind of grab your experimental hop and see if that's going to take hold? Well, they certainly can. Yeah. yeah, there's been several instances where, you know, a smaller brewer will take something on or, or even, a, you know, a, a brewer that has the ability to, to brew on a pilot scale, and that, that's that's a huge resource for us, right? Because uh, it it's and it's not you, you're never going to have a crystal ball that can predict ten years out, right. you know. Um, you know, if, if you would have, you know, to, you know, the best example is the rise of IPA. You know, a few years ago, um, we would have never predicted how big it was going to eventually become. You know, in the early two thousands, if you would have told me IPA was going to be that as big as it is now. 
I, I wouldn't have believed you. Yeah. Um, you know, so you don't, so we never predict that. Now, with that, with that said, we also, we did have kind of the foresight to say, okay, yeah, aromatics are important. Aromatics do matter. It's not just about alpha. Um, it, you know, there is something to, uh, these, these unique hops we were, we were coming up with, but it's not necessarily, about predicting saying okay yeah we know this is what everyone's going to demand a few years out the strategy really becomes having a wide enough genetic base within your program Hmm. and what i consider you know really an open mind when it comes to selection and, and and being able to identify things that are new and unique so that you can present options and that's where those smaller brewers or brewers that are willing to experiment or have the ability to experiment come in and really play a critical role because we can go in and uh, and start brewing some unique beers or, or get these small volume uh, hops trialed to see if there is something truly unique there. Um, you know, because actually in reality, I, you know, I smell thousands of hops and and you'll come across these really great aromatic hops and nine times out of 10, it doesn't translate well in the beer. So wow. you got to have that partnership with, with, with brewers. So we, we brew to some extent ourselves, but there's nothing more powerful than actually getting it into a, uh, the brewer's hand and, and getting their feedback on it. I see. Do you, do you have a, like a small pilot system that you guys brew on? You're saying, yeah, we do. Okay. We do. And it, it, you know, we can net out, you know, about a half barrel out of it. And, sure. Yeah, the problem the problem with that is you know is getting consistency yeah. as, as we all understand you know trying to get through that same recipe time in time out on a little system like that with, with little uh, little to no control on you know things like fermentation temperature and things like that it's a challenge sure, sure. and so to get it fully consistent so that's why I really value uh, working with the brewers that's why it's, it, to me it's much more powerful right okay. Well, I do want to get us to a quick break, um, but I want to set this up first because you just said something that has started, uh, is letting me start to wrap my head around how you can even do what you do. Because so far I'm just feeling like, wow, what a risk, and, and there's, no, there's no crystal ball and how difficult. But you did mention that you end up with this kind of base of, of crops, I assume, of, of plants that you can start to work from and you start to breed from there. Am I understanding that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. Then here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, let's kind of pick up from there and then we can follow the process further and how we end up getting a hop to market. Is that all right with you? That works. Okay. Hang in there, folks. You're listening to the Hop and Brew School podcast with Jason Peralt, and we will be right back. Welcome back to the Hop and Brew School podcast. We are still hanging out with Jason Peralt from Yakima Chief Ranches. Uh, and we are talking about, well, a little bit about the life cycle of hops um, and how we get them to market. And um, I just wanted to back up, I guess, real quick, Jason, and, and see, you know, I know that I had said before the break that I'm starting to understand how you have a core that you can work with before you get to new hops. But I wonder if we could finish... The list of your priorities uh, when thinking about a new hops, even if there's only five or so. But I, you know, I, I have so far, uh, you know, agronomics is your is is your first, you know, priority, right? Um, but in this, but in listening to you talk, uh, and then and then I guess alpha may might be your second. You can correct me. In listening to you talk, I think that like aroma and flavor is like down far on your list. But what is it for you? Uh, yeah, I, I think you could you could certainly like I, I mentioned you start looking at yield and pest resistance and, and basic efficiencies in the field uh, first, 
And of course, the you know the low lying fruit is, is is yield and pest resistance. We're going to look to those first. Those are absolutely critical. Um, and then from there, we're going to kind of move down through a list of, of things that kind of dictate, they almost play into yield and and in the in pest resistance to some degree. But um, you start looking at things like a uh, harvest window. I think is the next uh, hmm. maybe critical one. More increasingly so. It's not something people think about a lot, but Every hop variety has a very specific window that it is uh, the quality is optimized in terms of when you want to pick that. Um, you know, people think in terms of hop harvest being this basically four to six week period, and we just get in here and start picking hops. Yeah, that's what I well, thought. We're really, you know, we're really trying to manage uh, picking those hops at the right time, and so you know, a, a cascade, say, picked, you know. September 1st is a lot different than a Cascade pick September 21st. Wow. Okay. And so we're trying to dictate that. Now, some varieties are what I would call forgiving in terms of uh, they have a wide window. Cascade is one of those where it may not be the same hop, but you could still say it's still a decent hop. It's still good, and and different brewers are going to like it for different reasons, get on different points of that harvest window. Uh, Other hops, you take something, I think uh, citrus is a good example, are a little uh, less forgiving. They're unforgiving, whereas they've got a tight window. And if you go over that window, all of a sudden you start getting into the things like the onion, garlic, some of those kind of uh, uh, you know oxidative products uh, as the as the hop goes overripe is what yeah. we we would consider it. Like and so from citrus. a breeding standpoint, that's very critical. Um, you know, if we if we if we don't manage that, um, then what we end up with is is a situation where we're, we're kind of in today, where you have a kind of a stack of varieties right in the middle of the picking window that all have to come off at once. So for a grower, that's a tough uh, a tough thing to manage because here you have a lot of acres that all have to come off at once. So even though you might have the facilities to easily pick for four to six weeks, the bulk of your crop has to come off in in, in you know two weeks or ten right. days. Yeah. And so as a breeder, what we're really trying to manage is manage those windows to spread it out. So we have stuff on the early side and stuff on the very late side. In addition to that middle window where where hops have just traditionally fallen. Um, I mean, if you think about it uh, in terms of economics on the farm, what cheaper way to expand than to, to widen your windows? You know, if you could pick up two more weeks on the front end of harvest, that's a really cheap way to expand because you don't have to add any machinery. You don't have to add any equipment to do that. I see. So harvest window is very critical because we want to optimize the quality of the hops going to the brewer, and we want to maximize the the assets of the of the farm. Um, so we got, you know, asset utilization there is key. Um, and then beyond that, you start then that next window down. Um, I guess along those lines between yield, pest resistance, and harvest window in there is also, you know, other environmental conditions, uh, 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 considerations. And that might include, uh, well, you know, like, uh, specific versus general adaptability of the plant to, to the region you're in. A hop that grows well in Yakima does not necessarily grow well in, say, uh, you know, the Willamette Valley or, uh, over in Idaho. Um, so I, we have to kind of try to manage that and try to select for hops that are going to go hopefully generally across the entire region quite well. It doesn't always work that way. It's not an actual requirement, but it, it does matter. And that, that really relates a lot to, you know, how they tolerate, say, the heat or the, or the dryness of the Yakima Valley. Um, so those are all considerations we take in, in, in uh, that kind of whole realm between yield, 
pest resistance and harvest window and, and the environmental considerations um, of where you're growing the plant. Beyond that, that's when you take that next step into the next consideration would be your quality attributes. And that would be your, say, your alpha yield or your aromatics. And it's tough to say one's more important than the other. It kind of just depends on what you're trying to accomplish. Um, you know, if you're if you're looking to to select for alpha production, then obviously alpha yield is going to take a priority over aromatics. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I hope that an alpha uh, alpha smells good as well. Yeah, and you know, it can it can serve both roles. Um, you know, oftentimes people um, kind of separate hops into alpha aroma or or dual purpose, which I think is kind of a bit of a misnomer, right? Because all all hops are, are dual purpose. It just depends on on how efficient that is. So you know, you could use a Willamette to bitter your beer, but I wouldn't, you know, suggest it. It's just a very inefficient way to get it. Right. But they are that 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 they can be used for us. So in that regard, we're typically if we're selecting for alpha production for that bittering efficiency, for say an extract type hop, then um, that that takes top priority and actually relates back into the yield factors. Uh, but increasingly, obviously, we're focused in on aromatics um, and selecting for, for whether it be uniqueness or, or something that, that uh, has a similar brewing quality or something that might be out there now that we're trying to improve. So then the next step beyond that, after you get past the quality parameters, would um, uh, and that kind of skips ahead uh, to the brewers, right? That's where it's got to brew great beer at that point as well. Right. It might have great aromatics, but if it doesn't brew great beer, it, it, it doesn't matter. Um, and then we have to consider at that time also how well does that hop process? You know, is, is it something that is, is, is a good extract hop? Is there efficiencies there? Does it store well? And I think that's probably the first, you know, question in process uh, processability is, is how well does that hop store? Because oftentimes hops will have to sit in storage for several months before we can get them into a pellet and uh, so a hop has to be able to uh, to store without oxidizing really quickly yeah that's so, uh, and so one either, of, oh sorry Jason, know, just one of the things if i can oh, jump ahead. in there is like you know what's what's really interesting in terms of that processability and stuff you also have to consider uh the sort of i guess the rheology of of the hop beds in the kilns so that's the part, particle size the uniformity of the hop cone hmm. how it tumbles down the uh the picking machine and, and how it behaves in um in a kiln is that if you have a real life loose fluffy cone which which can be a nice hop it can be real pretty and can and has have nice characteristics but that's going to get a lot of eruptions in that kiln and, and blow through and and then uh you know if it's if it's real high oil content that's that's fantastic for for many reasons but if it's also super high alpha and super high oil you know we have to adapt our pelletizing our, our processing to make sure that it doesn't gum up the works hmm. That makes so, sense, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad you glad you brought that up, Nick, because, uh, you know, some of the – I kind of just breezed over it, but some of the factors that we look at in the field are absolutely critical. They might be small things and something you wouldn't necessarily think of, but they're absolutely critical. And, and cone type and growth habit are very important to that selection process. So when we're, I'm out there as a breeder looking at these plants, I'm looking for a very specific cone type. It's got to be – you know, a fairly dense closed cone because you're really trying to protect the lupulin glands inside are, are really that active, you know, manufacturing plant of the of the hop cone. And the bracts and bracteals, those petals that fold around that those lupulin glands, that's what's protecting them. And so cone type's absolutely critical and that relates to how well can we pick that plant. Mm. Growth habit of the plant also relates to how well we can pick that plant. So is it a really uh, top heavy crop 
that, that is, is very leafy, well, that's going to be a more difficult, we're going to have a difficult time processing that through the hot picking machines and getting them into the kiln cleanly. And then, of course, like Nick said, that, that, that cone type, whether or not it's a, a dense uh, round cone, is it going to roll off the dribble belts, fall through the fans, do all these things to get into the kiln uh, as clean as possible, but then also, and as quickly as possible, and then also uh, uh, how, how easily can we dry them. So these are all factors that are that are absolutely important, and they kind of fall at that that top level up there with yield and pest resistance. So you can kind of put an umbrella agronomics category on there is what I would call it um, yeah. that we look at first. Yeah, I'm really glad you guys are bringing this up because it isn't stuff I thought of. And Jason, you gave a, a great example about um, harvest time when you said having a having a hop that that uh, can harvest two weeks early is a really cost effective way because you don't have to buy extra equipment. Because you'd have to, mm-hmm. you, uh, so that you're not uh, harvesting all at exactly the same time. And the same might go with the kiln. You could have this wonderful hop, but you're not about to buy an entire new <laughs> kiln. Well, actually, you know. you know, a lot of people had to do that in the last couple of years Is that because right? of this this, yeah. this harvest window overlap and, and some of the varieties. Yeah. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Jason. Is it Citra Mosaic and uh, is it Simcoe? Um, there's a lot of overlap on or. Not as much Simcoe, but yes, definitely Citra and Mosaic. Mm-hmm. There's overlap there. Um, Which are two of the most popular Simcoe's varieties. Simcoe's kind of on the front end, and then we, we kind of move through Simcoe, and uh, then uh, move into now uh, Sabro, falls mm-hmm. into kind of that 1st of September piece. And then, then we go into this period of time where Citra and Mosaic really overlap each other. Wow. Um, and in fact, there's some, we, we have yards here on our family farm that, uh, you know, there might be mosaic that ripens before the citrus, so there's like this mix where you're you're jumping back and forth between varieties, um, and so that that definitely you know presents a presents a challenge if we are truly trying to optimize that, that picking window. And then you get into the tail end of the citrus and mosaic, and and actually on the front end of that you got another one, you got laurel, and mm. during that whole period of time is when Cascade's ready. <laughs> um, and, and Centennial is competing with Simcoe, so you kind of you get the idea, and then you get in the tail end of that, and you start getting into things like Equinot and Nugget and some of these others, uh, and finish out with something like Pato as a very, very as a very late hop. Right. Uh, so yeah, definitely right in that middle window, we've got a it's a real struggle to to get it done. And in fact, as you know, just an example, not to get off subject, but like our family farm, we're building a whole new uh, picking, drying, and baling facility this year. Uh, just to accommodate those changes in varieties uh, so we don't have to take our larger machine out of production, stop it, go into another variety, do all the cleanup and everything required with that. Hmm. Uh, we can just keep on moving, and, and so we're investing a significant amount to just – and it's purely on quality. It's not on expanding acres. And this is this so, is something that I'd, I'd really like to, to, to hammer home is that this is not going to directly feed into – um, YCRs, Peralt Farms, Family Farms, any of these, any of these growers' pockets. This is they're they're doing this because they understand that quality is paramount, mm-hmm. and so investing in this is. I mean, these are these are many millions of dollars for these facilities. They're huge. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, like I think, uh, Jason, how how long is your is your main kiln room? Oh, it's uh, three, just a little over three hundred feet. Well, so it's like a football, it's a football yeah. field. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, let's think about that, guys. Yeah. That's that's yeah. how big their kilns are, and so this is a huge yeah. amount of money. And w- this is the one thing that I really want to hammer home is that people like Jason and the growers that we work with are super quality conscious mm-hmm. because, quite frankly, 
we're all beer geeks and we like drinking good beers. So, so this overlap and all that stuff, and we love these hops because they're, they're brilliant at what they do. And that's, yeah. you know, hence the cheater hops, hence the, the big juicies, whatever you want to call them. But the, they make great beer, but they only make great beer when they're handled right. And so, so these folks are, are, are putting a lot of money into making sure that these hops are picked at exactly the right time and processed as soon as possible. And when they get to, to, to YCH, to Yakima Chief, there's another problem, and that's, and that's the hop storage index, is, is how well do these hops store um, and so you know if you have a hop that stores real well and and you can you can pelletize it and you can turn it into cryo or extract you know a couple of months down the line it's exactly the same as, as the dry the drying index of those hops is that it will it will perform well you know a couple of months later whereas if you've got ones that smell great in the beginning but they start to degrade fast you got to get them into a nitrogen flux container and pelletized and cryoized or whatever you want to do mm-hmm. you got to get them out of the environment that might make them their their quality degrade and so you know jason is is faced with this you know pressure from three sides really uh in, in producing a variety which is agronomic characteristic brewer satisfaction in terms of of character mm-hmm. and then maintaining quality across that entire range and then there's the time crunch so it's a it's it's complicated and yeah it's, and then they're they're yeah. you know our growers and our, our you know ycr they're they're I dare say the masters, and uh, it's it's an honor to work with with y'all and and and, and be able to, to handle your hops because man, do they smell good. <laughs> Sorry, I'm always, always going to kiss your butt a little bit because it's 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 always happy. Well, I, yeah, I'm looking at my, I can hardly manage my Google calendar right now. I, Never mind, <laughs> and I clearly can't manage any sort of scheduling. So, yeah, uh, uh, it, it you know you say that Nick, but it, it takes you know that what's happened over the last thirty years is is. You know the evolution of a, a very carefully uh, thought out supply chain, yeah. and so it's it's completely throughout that supply chain that we've been able to bring these efficiencies. But it's taken time. Like I said, it wasn't a flash in the pan. It was sure. it's been thirty years developing not just the breeding program, but but this entire supply chain that can maximize that quality from start to finish. We just happened to realize early on that the breeding program truly is at the beginning of that supply chain. And so everything we do in terms of selection, all these things we've been talking about, impact every subsequent step along that supply chain. So if we can have that positive, positive impact, which I think, you know, obviously we have, that's, it, it's playing out now on, on, the, on the brewing side as well. So that's, that's you know, kind of the, the bigger picture view we took of it. Um, storage is an interesting one because it does, it has that same, you know, it, has, it doesn't seem like it would, but it has that same impact going all the way down through the supply chain. But, you know, where that got that its start, really looking at storage, wasn't necessarily, didn't have anything to do really with quality of aroma. It started because we were burning warehouses down. <laughs> really? And, not uh, intentionally. But so, yeah, yeah, not, not, not intentionally, not at all. It was uh, uh, particularly the, the alpha variety uh, tomahawk, CTZs. These things, you know, you get them in the bale and they start to oxidize really rapidly. And that once that, that cascade of events, that oxidation started to occur, occur uh, bales were actually spontaneously combusting and burning down entire warehouses. And so when you hear a few years ago these warehouse fires, that's what was happening. And so what we started, uh, well, it's actually started work with, uh, that actually Chuck did with, uh, uh, like, Gail Nickerson and, and Al Hunnell way back when. They, they identified this uh, hop storage index, which is, uh, basically, uh, a number that's calculated out of a couple different absorbance levels um, you know, from UV spec that will actually tell us the relative level of oxidation that's occurred in, in, the, in the alpha. So it's the and rate so of oxidation. We'll do, we'll, hmm. 
What's that? It's the, it's the rate of oxidation that we have to watch out for. So, so it's storage right. indexes and so how quickly it'll go off. I see. Yep, we can use that to then look at. Uh, so, we'll, well, the way we measure that is we'll actually store the hops at room temperature for six months. Take a look at them after six months again and measure that HSI and see how well they stored. And to give you a kind of a relative idea, something like CTZs will generally lose about thirty to fifty percent. You know, they'll be at that thirty to fifty percent alpha loss after that after that six months versus something that stores really well, like a Galena or a, a Warrior might only lose 10%. And so, you know, we're looking for the, the things that are on that lower end of that scale or at least in the me- the middle of that. But it is it is kind of interesting, you know, and I yeah. I used to talk with Chuck about why, why we do it at room temperature, why we wouldn't just store them in cold storage because that's how hops are stored. And the only thing we could come up with is the idea back in the day was when they first came up with the measure was that hops were stored on farm at the time. And so you would take a hop and put them into your your uh your warehouse basically on the farm just a barn uh you know you'd get the hops in the barn and store them until the until the handler needed them and uh, so they weren't being put in cold storage at the time so i think the thought process there was you put them in in a warm place and let them let them sit for a while and see how well they do right so it's kind of interesting it's also a theory kind of <laughs> get off track here but it's also one of our theories as to why uh there became that we we got this distinction between the quality of uh, aroma hops out of Europe versus the quality of aroma hops out of the U.S. early on. One theory that Chuck and I used to enjoy discussing was the thought that perhaps that wasn't due to uh, an inherent difference in the hops or terroir or, or environment or whatever you want to call it. Part of it may have to do with the fact that the U.S. adopted cold storage so much sooner. Ah. And so you weren't getting this this mellowing or this softening of the hops as they sat in the, in, in kind of ambient temperatures. But just that that's kind of a side thought. But uh, sure. Yeah. Well, Jason, that's one of the things that that you and I uh, we've discussed at this uh, relative length, and and I've seen it myself is that, that some of the some of the growers in 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 the UK and in, in the EU, um, you know, they'll you know the brewers there will actually require a certain degree of off gassing um, to get rid of the mercine, which is very, too strong, it's too hoppy. Um, and you know the same thing with with some of the British hops. They 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 want them to to soften up a little bit because otherwise they they demonstrate too much character in the beer. And so yep. and that that kind of goes back to where we were talking about the, uh, the that noble character residing in in, in the bract after a lot of the lupulin oils have, have off gassed. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And that's uh, you know and, and it's interesting because now we're we've kind of gone the opposite direction. We're wanting that impact. We're wanting mm-hmm. that. Uh, you know, if you lose that, then it's it's less appealing. So, well, going back a little bit to, to to your discussion of the HSI or the hop storage index, you know, you were you were highlighting how uh, you, you started it talking about the burning warehouses, and then then you sort of highlighted how it's a kind of an economic decision that that you know the better storage is going to be the better quality for for brewers and stuff. But it's also quite frankly a, a safety issue is that you know the, those oxidation reactions give off heat, mm. and as as that oxidation cascade starts. It is almost impossible to stop, and I think I, I, I kind of blew your mind a, a couple episodes ago, ju- ju- uh, Justin, when we were talking about this. And it is that if if that occurs in the environment, there are enough um, volatile compounds in a hot bale that it doesn't matter if you restrict the oxygen to it; it will just continue because yeah. they'll be given off these, mm-hmm. these these reactive volatile components, and then whoosh, it goes up, and then all his neighbors goes up. It's well, it, it blows up warehouses too. Uh, there are some. Jason, how long was the was the the spontaneous combustion happening before you guys realized 
why and what was happening? Well, I think it, it was understood. It's oh, been understood okay. for a long time. You you can liken it to there's two. You can take it, look at it at two different angles. The one angle is if a hop is too, if a hop bale is too dry, it's like an oil soaked rag, right? Hmm. Once that oxidation starts, it takes off, and like Nick said, you can't slow it down. Okay. And the heat generates to a point where it starts on fire. So that that con, you know, conceptually has been understood for a long time. On the opposite side of that, if the bale's too wet. That moisture can be the driver behind getting that that process started, that oxidative process. So that wow. you know, and that that that's the best analogy there is uh, like a, a hay bales, you know, and it's been known for for how long that hay bales can spontaneously combust. Okay. So it's the same, principally, it's the same thing. So we understood that, but what we didn't, what we hadn't dealt with a lot in the hop industry was these really high alpha, high oil hops like the CTZs. And understood that how much mishandling them could impact that, and that's where, that's where it you know yeah it was a hard lesson, but it was a good lesson to learn because the entire industry really uh, learned how to handle hops better. They learned that okay, picking window matters because if you let the hops hang too long, your HSIs go up. You started that oxidative process, so once you get them in the bale, you're going to have problems. You're you're just that much more prone to it. Uh, once they're at the handler. Uh, they learned real quick that okay, we got to get these bales in cold storage as quickly as possible, so we can slow down any oxidation that's happening, mm. and then get them pelletized as quickly as possible. So what it did, because it forced everybody's hand, uh, you know, and the insurance companies obviously are coming out and saying, look, we're not going <laughs> to insure this industry if you guys don't figure this out. Right. What it really forced is is the the industry to get better at handling hops, and brought us to the point now where we understand quality to the extent that we do now. I believe. Um, so it was actually, you know. If you're looking for a silver lining, which I usually do, that would be sure. a silver lining and all that. And that we, it really taught us to be better at what we do, which, which you know, any good problem should do. Yeah, so. and sometimes we have to be forced. So <laughs> you know, yeah. And so you know, the offshoot of that, then of course, too, is, is as breeders for the past you know few decades, we've been now selecting for better storage stability. Okay. Um, for that very for that very reason. Okay. Well, let me skip us ahead a little bit, because I I think, anyway, uh, that we have a pretty good understanding of your thought process, um, and and then, of course, the length of time that it takes to bring a hop to market. Um, I wonder if we can get some examples out of you of some varieties that went through this process and still didn't make it. Mm-hmm. You know, you have this uh, this initial kind of litmus test, but I'm sure that sometimes it still doesn't work out. Yeah, and that 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 happens, uh, you know, quite a bit. Actually, if you're looking at it, just getting through the ten year process, uh, and then not working out into a commercial variety, that there's innumerable examples of that. Okay, um, yeah, you know, because because like I said, nine times out of ten, something that may smell great, you know, look great, and everything, maybe it doesn't do that great in the brewing, or maybe it doesn't quite offer what we have. So we'll pull back at that point, and not go through the commercialization effort. And, not, and I don't want to skip us too far ahead, but but at that, that commercialization effort can be a you know a five to fifteen year process in itself. So, so the total so, process time is about twenty five years on some varieties. Okay. Yeah, it can. It, you know, some of these varieties. You know, you look at. I give uh, the best examples I can give that I'm the closest to home for me would be Simcoe and Citra. Um, Simcoe, here's a cross that was made, you know, results from a cross that was made right around 1990. Hmm. Uh, we selected in, and, you know, Chuck and I selected it in 2000 to be advanced. But at the time, you know, what we were looking at was, yes, we liked the aromatics, but we also liked the fact that it had 14 plus alpha and a cohumulone of only about 18%. 
um, which there was a lot of research going on at the time that was attributing lower cohumulone to less harsh bitterness okay, or vice versa. Um, and so we were looking to that, to that hop to, to fill that kind of hole, you know, to, to this higher alpha, lower cohumulone, a good aromatic hop. But because of those aromatics, because of that pungency and that uniqueness, we couldn't, we couldn't even hardly give a pound away. And so it wasn't until, oh, 2010 or so where things really started to take off. You know, it kind of generated that following. There was several brewers that were using it and having great results. And then it kind of blew up at that point. So you're looking, you know, they're, you're at 20 years right there before it really took wow. off and became a success commercially. Um, Citra, uh, you know, Gene Probasco made that cross in two, uh, 1992. And we didn't release it. We didn't select it and release it until 2008. Wow. Uh, it had been selected. It had been in the program. It was just kind of sitting there. There was a few people that had kind of latched onto it and knew there was something great there. But it wasn't until it had a place in time that we were able to see some success with it. So there, again, a long period of time. Cascade followed a, a timeline like that as well, you know, where until there's a place in time for that variety, it may just sit. The up, opposite end of that spectrum is something like Mosaic, where we, you know, I made the cross for Mosaic in 2001, selected it for release in 2012. Uh, that one, you know, we hit timing just right, and it blew up right away, but it had its place in time right at that moment. Sure. So... It's amazing that that's that's a short example. (laughs) 2001 to 2012 is your short example. And going back to your going back to your Simcoe example, just just real quick. You know, you say you selected in 1990. Um, In 2000, you know, it's it's viable, but it smells so strange that nobody wants it. Uh, You still hold on to it. I have to admit that by 2000, I'm terrified. I would be terrified right now. I'm sitting on this hop I've been working on for 10 years. No, still nobody likes it. And you have to sit and be patient for it, as you say, to have its place in time. How do, I don't know how to deal with that. Uh, when you when you have a product development cycle that's, uh, that's 10 years long, you tend to get a little bit of patience. Okay, right. And so, you know, and plus you're... You know, you're kind of you're into it that far. You know, you're kind of all in, so to speak. Anyway, so what happened with Simcoe? And actually, we almost did back away from it completely. We we had got it up to I think a total of probably around 40 acres or so in a couple different locations, hmm. and we actually uh, we we built up inventory for a few years and decided to pull the plug and said, "No, nah, this thing isn't going anywhere. Let's pull it." And so we pulled everything out except for a couple acres. Wow. I think uh, Mike, Mike Smith left a couple acres up in Moxie, in, and uh, we decided just to, to leave it just in case, and we kind of chewed through that inventory. In the meantime, we had uh, some you know, some of the guys that we were working with at the time. Uh, you know, We were all fans of the hop and kept continuing to try to you know, push that and get it out there and get as much exposure in, in beer as we could to it. And it and it slowly kind of took hold, and so I see. Yeah, you know, it took a lot of legwork to get that that hop up and running. Um, you know, and then obviously we see the success we see today. Now, to your original question, you know, you know, some of these things that haven't maybe, you know, we've gotten that far, and then they just never did take off. And yeah, there's quite a few examples of that through the throughout the industry, and I think if you were to pick up a, a varietal handbook right now. And look through the, you know, hundred and, you know, I don't know, picking up, there's probably 150 different varieties you could name on a given list. Very few of them are grown 
you know, at commercially viable levels or what would be considered commercial levels. So the vast majority of varieties, is, you know, you could, one could argue, have, have for all intents and purposes, failed commercially. Okay. Um, with the exception of the, the you know, the, the, the few we've got now that are kind of in that top tier of, of, of acreage. And some um, of them you could you just know, say, fa- like, they, you know, you probably sold your crops, but then they just kind of phased out. I mean, maybe not the same as a failure. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a little different. They they kind of just lost favor because of maybe changing taste mm-hmm. or, or or what have you. Um, that that's definitely a factor. Some varieties um, you look at something like uh, well, we had one a few years ago that we had selected as a uh, as a hop that kind of had similar attributes to to Galena that we thought yielded a little bit better, but had similar aromatics. Um, we thought we could bring some efficiency to to Galena, which was in high demand at the time. But powdery mildew came in and just started wreaking havoc on it, and so it mm. just it just stopped. We just didn't see it worth it. Right. You know, a, another example that the industry saw around that same time where powdery mildew hit was uh, the variety Symphony that Haw had released. Um, beautiful alpha variety, great, great hop, but the timing was just bad. You know, it hit, hit at a time right when powdery mildew hit, happened to be very susceptible, mm. and we had a heck of a time controlling, you know, the, the growers that were growing it had a heck of a time controlling the disease. Wow. Um, so, you know, there, there's a hop that you know, just kind of fades. Um, yeah. I mean, you can give, you know, look at a hop like Willamette that was once planted across a, a lot of acres in the U.S., um, but just became such a challenge between powdery mildew and yield issues hmm. that, it, you know, it, it's just fallen out of favor okay. at this point. And along that so. along that note, Jason, um, if you look at some of the the older varieties, like in, if you're talking about, um, so, so it's, it seems that there always kind of has to be a bit of a backup plan with um, with a, with a new aroma variety, which is that um, mm-hmm. what I've noticed, and I think you, most people can see this, is that as time has gone on, and, and you've been releasing these 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 beautiful monsters into our into our, our boil kettles and our tanks. Um, the alpha has been creeping up there, like the average alpha of a new, what's considered mm-hmm. an aroma variety or, or one of these really highly aromatic varieties is much higher than it used to be. I mean, now these aromatic varieties have alphas that are higher than what the targeted alpha varieties were in the 70s and 80s. Mm. Um, is, mm-hmm. and, and is that because there is a relationship between the genetics of alpha production and, and, and these aromatic oils? Or is it because um, you guys are, you know, um, what, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, sort of, sort of making sure that you have you're keeping your options open. I guess that if if the aromas aren't yeah. quite right, we can then extract them at, at, at the right and still. Re- re- that's, Go ahead. That's part of it. You know that I think it's both. I think the uh, so you have to look at it from the standpoint first that just about every uh, well, our using our breeding uh, program as an example started out looking for alpha, right? And as you understand with breeding programs, you're looking for population gain, right? You're, you're looking to make actual improvements in your underlying genetics and, and, and overall population averages. And so we, we, um, you know, we were targeting that over the years. And so over time, our, our population, uh, alpha averages had gone up. And so it was just kind of, it was almost a function of that in some ways. Mm-hmm. But I think another piece to that. So, so there we're selecting from a base that probably has a little bit higher alpha. Than uh, maybe uh, you would expect, but then uh, beyond that, though, I do think there's a there's certainly a linkage between the two, and it may not be like you know alpha and oil on the same you know metabolic pathway or anything like that, but the I do believe that 
if you're selecting for something that has higher alpha or big impactful aromatics, you're going to be selecting something more than likely has more lupulin mm-hmm. than, than, than average. So just by that nature of, of selecting something that has that higher lupulin content, the number of glands, you're going to select something that is higher alpha, higher oils, and so on. Um, and, you know, we've seen it that, that there's definitely a correlation between the impact in beer and the, the amount of, uh, of active components within the cone. So that makes complete sense. All right. So here's another, another, another sort, of, sort of angle that I'd like to, to, to get your, your take on, which is that, you know, as growers, you've got years before the hop field really starts to yield well. And we know that, that that'll be from two years at the sort of minimum um, and up to three or four years on, on, on longer time. And that's, that's a significant investment to, to wait for, for, you know, the quote-unquote big aromatic good hops to come out of that out of that field so when you have Mm -hmm. the option of producing a variety that may be very interesting and there is a brewer demand for it say as an example um, there are a couple people that are interested in the variety sriracha ace Um, but it doesn't yield as well and there's not a lot of interest in 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 that variety relative to something like citra or mosaic which pretty much sells itself is does that factor into the decision making of whether a variety sort of fades away? You know, it's not yielding as much. It's, it's so you have to like you know the farmers' economics have to come into this. Um, mm-hmm. So like when you look at sort of sort of say bullion and eroica, those were two two old classic varieties that were considered high alpha at the time. I mean, you know, about around eight and seven seven or eight percent, um, but they had mm-hmm. some really beautiful aromatics, but they were incredibly disease and pest sensitive so they 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 were effectively the effect of actual yield was was much lower on average Mm -hmm. than than what they were supposed to produce um sriracha ace on the other hand is you know it's 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 all right but it doesn't yield that much and there's not a lot of interest in it so some people really love it but a farm a grower has to make the choice saying okay well i can i can grow it but the opportunity cost of growing this hop is that I'm not growing mm-hmm. mosaic, I'm not growing citra, I'm not growing Simcoe, I'm not growing such CTZ or or Pato. So I'm, mm-hmm. yeah, you got to prioritize this stuff. So, um, you know, that's that's a that's something that I think people need to understand is that you know, yes, this hop could be awesome, but if it doesn't yield well, it's mm-hmm. not going to, you know, it, you're either going to pay out the nose through it, or you're not going to have it. Yeah, and so. Um, in the pipeline of stuff that, that you've got coming up and stuff, what um, you know, what are what are some of the things that you're you're excited about, and, and what are some of the some of the characteristics that you see that 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 you're excited about bringing into the market in terms of of, of, of you know, not only the agronomic stuff. Obviously, I'm I'm very interested in that, but but a lot of the, the brewers are going to be more interested in um, you know, what are the characters that that you're you're starting to see emerge from from your wonderful large population that people that you think people are going to be excited about, or that that you know brewers have expressed interest in. Um, yeah, so the you know the, the challenge with with uh, one of the challenges with breeding hops is the fact that yes, we have several hundred compounds that are contributing to the aromatics of the hop, but there's this inherent linkage within the hops that doesn't create a, a, a the level of variability you would expect, right? It, you, you know that you start to it's very easy to classify different you know hops into different aromatic buckets. So you can say, okay, yeah, this is more on the spicy side. This is more a citrus hop. This this has some tropical aromatics. You can start to, to classify them pretty easily. Um, what I get excited about are when we find things that maybe fall into a new bucket, maybe something that we haven't really used, you know, the words we haven't really used to describe hops before. 
and I'm not talking nuances. You know, it's very easy to say, yeah, I'm getting, you know, you smell a hop and you sound like a wine taster, you know, in terms of I'm getting, you know, these uh, slight nuances of this, that, and the other thing. Sure. I'm talking the memory of sitting on my father's knee. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm talking the, like the really big, you know, unique aromatics that, that are truly new and then have an impact in the beer. And what we're finding is, you know, as you line up, say, uh, your your oil profile, being able to identify not necessarily new peaks, but maybe higher peaks within certain compounds in terms of that, that oil profile. And so we're starting to see some of these plants, and, and part of it is through the introduction of uh, some novel genetics, some wild genetics into the program, uh, you know, about a decade or more ago. Uh, actually, it's been about 15 years ago. Um that we're we're seeing these these uh, these families with these really unique aromatics that translate really well into the beer, and they're really big. When we talk about big and juicy, they're really big and juicy. You know, and that's that's pretty exciting um, to start to see these new these new aromatics and uh, you know really really heavy into the uh, well. It, it ranges. We've got four seventy two is a good example. It's a hop actually we could talk about in terms of not yielding well but having a big impact. Uh, you know, where it, it gives beer this definitely a, a very pronounced uh, woody barrel age kind of character, all the way down to these hops that are just massive, uh, you know, stone fruit and mm. and uh, tropical notes with vanilla. It almost, you know, smells like creamsicle or you know some sort of peach dessert or something with, wow. with some herbal underlying herbal character that that we haven't really picked up before in hops that translates into the beers. So those are some things that we're really keying in on right now that I think could uh, could be uh, very interesting for the future. I love this example you gave of, of even a barrel-aged flavor, but just coming from hops. That's incredible. It's, uh, 472 Ooh. is real crazy because the first time I smelled it, I described it as uh, snickerdoodles. Okay, yeah. And then someone said, no, no, it's bourbon barrel-aged. I was like, oh, God, yeah, that's exactly what it is. Yeah, yeah. It's that cinnamon vanilla yeah. character. And then, wow. Um, and I assume, Jason, like one of the things with that, those new peaks and those those higher peaks that you were talking about, I assume you're, re- you're, you're referring to our, our, our good friend Sabro to some extent. Oh, certainly. Sabro is kind of the, on the front end of that. Actually, Sabro and 472 are sisters. Um, okay. So those that have been around uh, using experimental hops for a while will recognize the number 438. That was uh, Sabro's accession number. Uh, 438 and 472 are sisters. Um, came from the same mother. The I do not know the father. I actually used a, a, a technique we commonly use for open pollination in terms of poll- we bulk the pollen and then pollinate. And so I didn't know the, which the father was, but uh, they have the same mother, which was a New Mexicanist plant. And so, yeah, they, they definitely you're starting to see these new uh, you know different peaks in different areas, and then different combinations of peaks that we hadn't seen before. And you can really start to tease that information out as you look at the data and realize kind of a little bit more what's going on there. But, uh, yeah, uh, Sabro is, is that's a fun hop. It's making some really, really killer beers right now. Um, you know, we've, we, it, it contributes a nice uh, stone fruit, tropical, you know, vanilla with an underlying kind of minty characteristic. That, mm-hmm. uh, I, whereas is, I get uh, coconut is, and lime is, from it. really a lot of fun. So yeah, coconut for sure. It's, uh, and it's, there's a lot going on. Very there's a lot of fun. Fun of the descriptors is that you get like so. I, I've said I've described uh, a 100% Sabro beer as a pina colada beer. Okay. Um, and yeah. and I, I like I love it. Very uh, tropical. Very tropical, but in in not not mango ways, but okay. in like coconut pineapple ways. Yeah, I see. Yeah, it's different kind of. You know, obviously there's many different. You could describe tropical in many different ways, but mm-hmm. that one's definitely, uh, I think you, you, you described it really well, Nick. And what's interesting about a hop like that and these hops, all these hops, this entire series of hops that I'm talking about, 
uh, one of the daughters of Sabra, 692, is the same way. The impact they have is really interesting. Mm-hmm. We're still trying to figure out why they're mm-hmm. so impactful. Mm-hmm. Um, because that, and obviously, it has to do with the combination of compounds that are contributing to the aromatic. Uh, they're not super volatile. They're sticking around in the beer. Um, that's, you know, that's a curiosity to me because you can use just a little bit of Sabro and it goes a long ways. So you can, you can, it, it really lends itself, I think, to, uh, to a lot of flexibility within the brewing because of that. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's know, one can, of those things that we've said that you can, you can use Sabro on its own, but you're probably going to want to use about, start with about 50% of your, of your, of your normal base charge uh, of, of hops if you're making a pale ale, mm-hmm. um, because it'll be very assertive. And you can make 100% Sabro beer, but you got to be, you know, don't, don't go like double IPA dry hopping levels on it because it's, it, it, it's going to give you a lot. At the same time, it's one of those mm-hmm. ones, Jason, that you and I have talked about is the concept of the lifter hop, where even at 5% of your hop bill, mm-hmm. it's just going to lift all your other players up and it, it creates yeah. again the whole is greater than the sum of the parts right and it's just this wow mm-hmm. that just popped in my face yeah. um so it's it's one of the things that i really love and this is something that i've talked about before jason this is this is uh you and i have, have kind of wandered around about this concept which is that um you know the age of of the rootstock and the the the, the bedding in period that a hop plant has in the field seems to have an impact on on the expression and this is this is like laurel being laurel and equinot you know so early early days like it, it, you know when it was it is last year of the elite trials we're like okay equinot's going to be the next big thing it's freaking amazing and then the first two years it was kind of a little bit insipid and then year three it was like whoa this is crazy um and this, i saw the same thing with laurel and i've seen this before whereas that the younger the plants the less expressive they might be and so Laurel, when we'd originally released it, we were describing it as sort of like this floral, very like supercharged noble character. Whereas now I'm like, no, dude, this is like citron steroids. This is it's crazy fruity, crazy citrusy. It's amazing. And so, how do you deal with that aspect of it? Well, that's you know, that's one of the well, again, one of the many challenges we face is, is during that commercialization phase is going from hopefully we've done our homework through this 10-year development process, you know, where we've gone through and we've vetted this thing. It's gone through complete selection. We started with, you know, it started several thousand uh, siblings and kind of worked its way through the program and finally made it there. Hopefully, during that 10-year process, we've identified the key characteristics that define that hop. Um, What happens is then you expand that to bigger trials and bigger plots. And so you'll go into, you know, multiple acres and multiple locations. And there's a couple things that's going on. One of them is, those early years, the first years after release of a hop, you're you're really ramping up the the acreage really quickly, and you're getting um, you know a lot of what we call baby acres, those first year acres that they don't produce as well. We've we've probably pushed the fertility a little hard, um, and there's there's a, a really a consistent maturity level because there's not as many combs. You don't have like the same level of variability in the maturity of the of the overall plant. Um, and so you, you get a little bit different expression from that alone. Um, not to mention you are planting now in different locations and the plant's going to, you know, there's that whole G by E, genetic by environmental interaction that occurs where the plant is going to react a little bit differently based on where it's planted, how the grower grows it. So all these variables come into play and it can create kind of a little bit of a different profile, especially in those early years. What tends to happen then is after a few years of growing and the expansion slows down a little bit, it kind of settles into where it's going to be. And then, then it kind of becomes what you would expect it to, to be. Um, and my hope as a breeder is that 
whatever it was that I fell in love with at the breeding stage, that's where it settles in at, mm. at the commercial stage. Um, and you get rid of all those kind of variables that, that really, in a lot of ways, might be screwing it up and, <laughs> right. and then uh, get some consistency. Um, it doesn't always happen that way. Sometimes you blow it up and it never does perform the way you would, you would predict it or hoped. Um, and sometimes they'll go downhill for other reasons. You know, it might be a virus or viroids or some other disease uh, type uh, causal organism that, that uh, can cause problems. So, sure. yeah, there's, it, it's a very complex you know, formula there. There's no uh, no easy answer. Uh, <laughs> and I was a lot that a lot that goes into it. And I was just about to get excited for for you and your job as we were talking about the the hops that have made it and how wonderful they are. I was like, oh, there's the payoff. Like it's worth all of this that we've been talking about. And then you talk again <laughs> about how all these variables. I'm just going, Jason, man, you must you must meditate a lot. You're, you're like <laughs> you're the Buddhist of the hop industry. I feel or of the of the beer yeah, industry. Well, I- I would say that's probably correct. It's our, our kind of the Zen spot, you know. You know, and Chuck and I used to always joke that, uh, you know, if you, if you look at the selection rate from the time where you know you have your crosses that you make and you got all your progeny from that, and you go through that ten year process, at the end of the process, the selection rate is abysmal. It's like point zero 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 one percent of what we create is successful. Wow! So we're throwing away ninety nine point nine 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 percent of our life's work. Right. I mean, how incredibly depressing is that? <laughs> you know? and, and the, yeah. So it's the it's the it's the one success. You know, it, it is it is very gratifying though when you do have success. You right. know, when you see something that's successful as a you know as these some of these hops have been. That that's you know that's that's really where it, it, it's it's satisfying and not and even more so when you start to see uh, the them actually provide value across that supply chain when you start seeing okay yeah we've, we've actually uh, been able to add to the sustainability of the hop farm we've actually mm. been able to add value at the handler and processor level and then create the, or the brewers have created some incredible beers resulting in these satisfied beer drinkers i mean that's sure so it, it does just take that one success you know it doesn't you don't have to have uh, uh you know new new varieties every year and you know if we can if we can have one or two home runs uh yeah, in a career that's that's pretty good. Well, know? and and let's be clear: if maybe ninety nine percent of of the of the crops that you try, of the breeds that you try, don't make it, that doesn't mean that ninety nine percent of your efforts have gone to waste. Because clearly, you learned so much <laughs> along the way, and as you're saying, you got you've, you've sort of paved the way, helped out other growers. So I guess you can kind of hold fast to that. The efforts are not a waste. We just sometimes don't end up with the no, product, no, not you know? at all, not at all. <laughs> well, Jason, one of the things I wanted to say is 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 uh, as we close up here is uh, again thank you so much but one thing that your dad once said that really stuck with me um, was the fact that you know 20 or 30 years ago you could not imagine let alone brewers but consumers going up to a bar and saying hey do you have any uh, beer with a specific hop name in it or right. going hey do you have any beer with a citra in it do you have any beer with an equinot do you have any beer with a laurel do you have any beer with this simcoe them taking the front seat because like they love those flavors now. and so i think that that change has been beautiful to see yeah. and uh, i'd like to thank you yeah. personally from the industry there we go for for helping us out there man <laughs> that's right <laughs> well I appreciate your words, Nick. But obviously, you know, it's, it, I, and I'll, I'll, I'll always say this: anytime something like that gets said, is it's kind of taken the perfect storm, you know, of, yeah. of events to come together, and and it's great when you do happen to 
you know, find your own place in time. I talked about Hoffs finding their place in time, and I think our we found our place in time. Our efforts have found our place in time, and this perfect storm between, you know, great beer and, and great hops have kind of come together, and it's it's definitely a, a, an amazing time to be in hops and in the beer industry. And yeah, I, I don't know, we're we're loving it. So yes, it is good to to when the consumer starts taking note of the hops that are in their beer. It's a big deal. Yeah, absolutely, it's a really big deal. All right, Jason. Well, this discussion has made me thirsty. I have to tell you that right now. I'm going to need to have to go get find the hoppiest, uh, uh, most aromatic beer I can find out on that list. Uh, Jason, I want to thank you so much for being on the show. Jason Peralt from Yakima Chief Ranches. Um, and, yeah, thanks for your time and all that you do. I hope to see you at Hop and Brew School. Yeah, absolutely. I'll be there, and I appreciate you having me on. And It's been a great discussion. Absolutely. All right, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks again, Jason. And there we have it, our first foray into the agricultural side of hops. And there'll be a lot more of that to come, as you can imagine. Uh, But what a great start. And uh, once again, thanks to Jason um, for doing that with us. Uh, All right, Nick, it's time to go have a beer. What do you think? I think that sounds like a brilliant idea. Um, (laughs) Let's go get the really aromatic ones. That's what we're going to look for. We will be back with more Hop and Brew School before you know it. Thanks for tuning in. Tell your friends. Don't forget you can send your feedback. Back to hop and brew school at the brewing network.com. That's hop and brew school at the brewing network.com. We'll answer your emails on the air and occasionally might even write back to you. Uh, go to yakimachief.com if you want more information on the actual hop and brew school, not the podcast, but uh, their event that's happening Labor Day weekend this year. So go check that out uh, for information and to be able to reserve your space there. Yep, hopefully we, we put on the weekend, so hopefully you all can make it now because uh, it's a little bit easier on travel schedule so there we go all right until next time take care of yourselves and your beer